the music behind the glass Jerry has selected coming in the wake of Neil Diamond announcing he has to uh, finish touring because he has Parkinson's disease. Sweet so that's sad news. And uh, of course, the big story this morning, this tsunami warning on the West Coast. Uh, good morning, Greg. Good morning, Brett. I suppose I should say that. No, uh, <laughs> good morning to everyone. Uh, can you imagine we were having the conversation, what, just over a week ago about Hawaiians and people visiting Hawaii getting startled from, you know, their early morning about 8.30 or I guess it was just after 8.05 in the morning in Hawaii when they got the ballistic missile warning that was supposedly not a test. Well, this is definitely not a test what's going on on the coast of British Columbia and Alaska right now. A tsunami warning is in place. Yes, and uh, one of our colleagues, uh, actually Sam Stevens down the hall at Peggy at 99.1 pointed out that there is a Twitter user uh, at, it's at scary, well, it's at scary girl, but it's actually spelled scary uh, G-I-R and then capital I. And uh, the uh, the sirens that Jeff Braun played at the top of his newscast, these ones here, were taken from her Twitter feed. She pointed, uh, she's in Kodiak, Alaska, and uh, these are tsunami sirens going off. Uh, she says, I usually only ever hear the weekly siren test at 2 p.m. on Wednesdays, so hearing it at 1 a.m. on Tuesday is actually terrifying. Kodiak, by the way, uh, they are three hours behind us. So right now in Kodiak, it is 3.07 a.m. Yeah, so basically in the wee hours of the night, uh, this tsunami warning is issued. Kylie J, also known as you mentioned, a scary girl, but the L is an I if you want to seek her out on Twitter. I imagine she is gathering uh, followers by the hundreds right now. I got woken up to my entire room shaking and things falling over now tsunami sirens are going off. I'm upset and scared. Then she says the roads are snowy and icy. People have to evacuate and it's also the middle of the night and the tsunami is meant to hit Kodiak in 20 minutes. That's about an hour ago. I feel like a news reporter, but tweeting all of this, a lot of people asking, you know, in the middle of something like this, why are people on social media? This is why she's on. I feel like a news reporter, but tweeting all of this helps me feel less upset, less nervous. And then she adds that she heard helicopters over her house, tsunami sirens still going strong. As of about an hour ago, she says, tsunami meant to hit Kodiak in a minute, listening to the public radio for updates. Sirens, of course, still going. Now, the uh, the as Greg mentioned, the, the first wave was supposed to hit at around 1.45 a.m. Kodiak time. So that would have been about an hour and 25 minutes ago. Uh, but the, 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 there was no wave, uh, no reports of waves yet. Nothing had been seen. So uh, the wave activity was supposed to begin at 145. Looks like nothing as of about an hour ago. Uh, she says, Kodiak update, according to her Twitter feed, caller on the radio says they heard a boy, a buoy or a boy report that there is a possible 32 foot wave. Another Kodiak update. This is just under an hour ago. I don't really know what is going on. A lot of us here don't seem to know What's going on? The radio says a lot of the websites that would provide us information are down. Now, just looking at them, if you're curious about the geography of where is Kodiak, Alaska. Oh, and by the way, this is something I've never seen uh, 
when our internet, for whatever reason, <laughs> it thinks we are in British Columbia. I yeah, guess I that's think it's just of, where our server is yeah. or where we tie back to. So when we go to Google, there is a tsunami warning that pops up right at the top of the page for Alaska and British Columbia. We get a big red band that goes across the top. But uh, Kodiak, Alaska, it's kind of like it's it's on a little island, just uh, sort of uh, not quite the southern tip of Alaska, but it's kind of out there in the middle of the open in the, the Gulf of Alaska. And if you look at pictures of it, it is very picturesque, it, uh, very reminiscent of a lot of small towns on the coast of Newfoundland. Uh, absolutely a gorgeous spot. And yeah, actually, all you need to do is Google in Kodiak, Alaska or Alaska and a big red banner comes up on Google Tsunami Warning Alaska. So they're really tuned in here in terms of uh, the warning systems and what's going on. So we're keeping an eye on that this morning. If you have any friends or relatives in that part of the world that are communicating with you and they'd like to communicate with us, we would certainly be open to having that discussion and figuring out how we could make contact with them, uh, not to exploit their experience in any way, shape or form, but uh, just kind of the way the world is now, Brett. We thrive on these shared experiences. And in the case of this young woman, it seems to be helping her to be sharing this information at least her own experience based on what she knows it's it's fairly therapeutic for her so if we could help somebody out on that front we'd be happy to do that as well we will continue to follow this story of course it is the big story this morning on 680 cjob and quite frankly across north america 8.2 reading on earthquake which has triggered tsunami warnings and evacuations in coastal alaska and british columbia Getting word that the tsunami warning for coastal British Columbia has been cancelled, uh, downgraded in Alaska as well to uh, basically an alert. Residents along the province's coast were awoken by warning sirens shortly after the quake with a magnitude of 7.9 struck at 1.31 a.m. Pacific time today off the coast of Alaska. The quake struck 278 kilometers southeast of Kodiak at a depth of about 10 kilometers. And we are joined now by one of our colleagues of 680 CJOB, our sister station, CKNW in Vancouver. Bailey Nicholson joining us from Vancouver at 980 CKNW, global radio there. Harrowing morning in the newsroom there, Bailey. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, definitely a crazy few hours. I mean, obviously not just for us in here, but for people who are waking up to alerts like that, being told, get to higher ground, you know, there's, there might be a tsunami incoming. I don't think that's something that any of us were expecting for this morning. We've been monitoring the situation on Twitter and of course on the Newswire, a variety of reports, contradictory reports, uh, quite similar, I think, to what we experienced just a couple of Saturdays ago go with the missile warning in Hawaii. I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, shall we say, dissecting, I think will be going on Monday morning quarterbacking about how these warnings go out and how accurate they are and how well do people pay attention to them? Definitely, that's very true. And I think another big thing here, especially uh, we're located out of Vancouver, I think just kind of the blanket, you know, warning or blanket tweet of a tsunami warning for BC's coast. Well, Metro Vancouver was not a part of that. So that was something really important to stress. Um, It was essentially all other areas of the coast, though, but 
yeah, I think people, it's definitely important and people will be paying attention to how it was covered because you just see that on its own and that's really scary. And, and you need, people need to look closer and look at the zones, look at the areas affected, which is what we, we tried to let people know as soon as we could. Now, Bailey, was there any significant wave activity? We know that there, were, there was the expectation that there would be some, but uh, then there were reports that indicated maybe nothing happened. That's right. Um, The last that we had heard out of the district of Tofino, uh, which was one of the areas that had, you know, emergency sirens going off this morning that had people going up to City Hall to evacuate. They were anticipating um, that a wave might hit at around 440 a.m. local time, which is about right now. Um, As far as we know, nothing has hit. And I wouldn't anticipate it, given the fact that the warning has now has now ended for everywhere else. As well. Now, I know we're just sort of in the aftermath of this tsunami warning ending for British Columbia, but do you think the conversation will quickly shift to how overdue the lower mainland is for a major earthquake and the preparedness uh, level of Greater Vancouver and other metropolitan areas uh, on, the va- on the British Columbia coast, uh, Victoria, Nanaimo, all these major population centres? Do you think this conversation is, is going to uh, quickly overtake uh, the one of what happened this morning? Uh, I mean, I think so. Uh, this is something that's that's talked about a lot, even when there isn't a major event here. It's just kind of something that gets brought up from time to time. OBC is overdue for a big quake. You know, Vancouver Island um, is pretty high risk for something like that if it were to happen. Um, given the fact now that this morning there was a major event Um, I think that's definitely going to dominate part of the conversation was how ready are people for that, you know, Um, and kind of what measures were were taken when we were expecting a wave to potentially hit. Now, do you have any, uh, like, I know that the the warning initially was, as you mentioned, just for the sort of the blanket coast, but it did not include Vancouver. But were there any uh, sirens or does Vancouver have any sort of emergency sirens that you're aware of? Um, that, not that I am aware of, that's not something um, that we looked into just because Metro Vancouver was very clearly not included in this warning. Um, so that would definitely be something to look into, but it was essentially everywhere else, um, aside from maybe East Vancouver Island and here in Metro Vancouver and Greater Vancouver. So, but I know, you know, that Vancouver Island is, is always discussed as kind of like the biggest target for stuff like this that just the the coastal area there is is going to be hit the hardest and i think we definitely saw that in this warning that that might be the case uh because so much of the island was affected by the warning and was like the last area to have the warning end bailey thank you for this some uh, frazzled nerves i'm sure around british columbia this morning uh in the wee hours of the night essentially we appreciate uh, your time and uh, giving us an update firsthand no problem thanks guys All bailey right. nicholson from uh, cknw in vancouver Mackling and mcgarry along with shanley vidal kelly moore jeff braun and of course behind the glass jerry gathering around the dinner table in a sense a Winnipeg restaurant is biting back after a few San Jose Sharks players recently called Winnipeg the worst 
place in the NHL to visit. Our friends at Silver Heights Restaurant will be adding shark bites to its menu in honor of the Winnipeg Jets' return to San Jose. The main ingredient is, of course, shark. Now, so today we're having coffee talking about what exotic foods have you ever tried or want to try? Now, this particular fish that they are serving this this evening is something called BC's spiny dogfish, which is uh, a small species of shark. And they he says they only they only ordered in one, um, so it's basically you're just going to get a bite when you go in. Uh, but still, that's pretty cool. Sounds and, delicious, spiny dog. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, when yeah. you put it that way, Joe. What a horrible name for a fish. Yeah. Well, why, why don't we start with you, Bron? No, I don't eat weird stuff. Never? Nope. I'm picky. I don't even, I don't eat ketchup and mustard, so. What? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a plain Jane. No, I've been, no I've condiments. Been out, I've been out for lunch with. Yeah, and you uh, hear me ask for a plain cheeseburger, please. Yeah, I guess so. Yep. Okay. Mm. It's way easier to wash dishes afterwards, too. <laughs> I think that's the impudence for you. I still think Quite he's too frankly. cheap to buy either. <laughs> Kelly okay. Moore, what about you? Uh, I haven't I haven't eaten a lot of exotic foods. I don't know if frog's legs count. Yes, uh, sure. Okay, frog's legs. Uh, uh, where did you have those? I uh, had those down in Nashville. Uh, I'm, I think... Many, many years ago, I might have had chocolate-covered grasshopper, but I'm not 100% on that. Okay. Uh, Were you also consuming a lot of alcohol at the time? No. Why why would you not remember that? I wasn't on the uh, episode of The Amazing Race or anything like that. I just, uh, I, I, I... I'm grasping at straws here. I know I, I traveled so much for hockey. Fair enough. And we went to different places. Okay. And I traveled with people who were adventurous and said, hey, you, you have to try this at least once. Have okay. you tried Gator Kelly? No, I haven't, but uh, that sounds good. Yeah, my boyfriend loves it. He says it tastes like chicken. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that's the fallback why position on all these things. You know, I know. It always tastes like chicken. Well, what's the most exotic thing you've eaten, Shanalee? You, uh, you took us down this road somewhat. I, I'm hoping you have a good story because I sure don't. <laughs> well, I, uh, I have I have actually tried a bite of shark. Yeah? Um, I got Spiny bull- dog? I don't know what it was. I got bullied <laughs> into it. It's at a Chinese restaurant. Um, I've eaten you got o- bullied into it? I've eaten octopus. I've accidentally eaten uh, venison when I didn't know it was, what it was. Um, what is venison? A- Deer. Deer oh. meat. <laughs> She's gonna cry. Don't say that. Bambi. <laughs> the worst thing, but but what is on my list to try is, and I haven't got around to it, is jackfruit. Jackfruit. And the room goes silent. Yeah, I've yeah. had jackfruit. Yeah. Have you, tr- you tried it, Jerry? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's and, a very meaty fruit. Yeah, and and a lot of people talk about making pulled pork out of it, and it, it's yeah, it's a type of fruit, and it's like a very big big fruit. Then you can buy it. Uh, portioned out into cans uh, at a lot of uh, ethnic stores, and you can put it in a slow cooker, add some like uh, special sauce, and and it tastes very meaty. Not that I'm necessarily looking for a meat taste. And durian, I've always seen it at the grocery store, and I've never been brave enough to buy one. It's like the big uh, oblong spiky fruit. Oh yes, an, I think it's an Asian fruit, and I've. Yeah, it's if you ever see it I in the store. I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, it looks like uh, if you even touch it, it it's very hard and and uh, it has these pointy kind of thorns. I think it's uh is it Philip is it from the Philippines? Oh, I'm not sure. I just know it, I just know that it's it's an Asian fruit, but it's right now, everybody's Greg. <laughs> and apparently it's it's really stinky as well. 
supposedly I've heard that it, the, the stinkier that. the better the fruit. I, I can't remember. <laughs> Every single works. thing about this fruit sounds like it's yeah. yelling at the world, don't eat me. Don't eat me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it really. How, do, how does one discover it? Because when you look at it, it's uh, it really it, it's like picking up a porcupine. Uh, but with stronger thorns. Interesting you should mention porcupine. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yes, Reese uh, texted us at 204-780-6868. Porcupine for me, kind of like duck, oily and stringy. Ugh. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. I don't want to know how you acquired the porcupine, Reese, but uh, we'll go with that. Uh, Mick says venison is delicious. And on the subject of venison, Shanley, you, when you learned that it was in fact deer, did they, you because you you had that a very visceral reaction with us. Have it, you couldn't even explain what it was. So, would you have been okay with it if it was a if it was just regular cow? That's a good question because the time it ate it, I was like transitioning away from meat, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, um, I what I did think, you think it was? I didn't know. I knew. I was like, I was. Still kind of eating regular meat. This was I was in Taiwan and I was oh. I was told uh, I want to order just plain spaghetti and the, the people I was with wouldn't let me. They were like, oh, you're in other country. You have to try try something different. Okay. Try something you've never had before. And so they ordered this for me and I didn't know what venison was. I, like, I wasn't that cultured yet. Well, this whole this whole thing reminds me of a segment in Dennis Leary's. He had a comedy special called No Cure for Cancer back in the early 1990s. His song A Hole uh, was sort of spawned from that, mm-hmm. and he has this bit where he's talking about loading different animals in different, uh, either on a truck or you're free to go. And there's one where he says, "What kind of animal are you? I'm an otter. And what do you do? I float around on my back and do cute little human things with my hands." Aww. You're free to go. <laughs> and, then, and then the next one comes along. What are you? I'm a cow. Get on the truck. You're a, <laughs> you're a baseball glove. Get on the truck. <laughs> oh, my. Why do I have a feeling that behind the glass, Jerry has a long list of exotic things that he's tried? I don't know if it's a long list. I've, uh, I've had sweetbreads. I don't recommend them to anyone. What? Oh, I think I know what those are. It's sweet uh, breads. Sweet breads. Yeah, it's basically uh, organ meat, uh, uh, either from the thymus or the pancreas of an animal. Why do they call it bread? I don't know, and to it's trick not, you. and it's not sweet either. So, <laughs> uh, sweet bread is a culinary name for the thymus, also called throat, gullet, or neck sweet bread, Yum. or the pancreas, Ooh. and so on and so forth. Yeah, it even looks gross. Yeah, yeah, it tasted gross too. Great word. Great Everybody's great eating breakfast right now. Thank, <laughs> thanks, guys. Sweet breads, not sweet, not bread. Um, I've also ostrich. Uh, used to actually be one of my favorite red meats. Tastes like chicken. No, it tastes like a sweet, sweet beef. Really? Okay. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a I had a uh, chef friend who, for my birthday every year, would make would make me roasted ostrich. Now our so our good friend Tim, who listens loyally every morning, says, "Guys, porcupine is one of the only wild animals you can eat raw." Interesting. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, I just tried rattlesnake sausage from another loyal listener in Sedona. It was really good. We also lived in Ecuador, where I tried. Guinea pig <laughs> and a bunch of weird fruits. The little guy didn't taste like chicken. <laughs> I think the weirdest oh. thing I've ever had to eat is uh, shark fin soup. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, when it was at a, a Chinese wedding, and it was at a dim sum place. I believe it was the Kung Kun Garden. Yeah. Uh, that's on King Street. Yeah. And this was going back over a decade now. And it it was the strangest thing I've ever eaten because it it looked like uh, the, the liquid was clear. It, it was it was like a jelly almost or a gelatinous, and and it looked like I was eating a bowl of hair. To be quite honest, it looked Yuck. it looked gross, but it tastes so I. Trying to convince myself to consume this was a challenge unto itself, but everyone at the table said, "No, no, no! You got to try it. Just try it." And I tried it, and it was uh, it was delicious. And I feel bad saying that because I think it's one of those. I don't not even sure if you can order that anymore because yeah. I think it's uh, unethical, illegal. I don't know all that stuff. Yeah, but when people uh, yeah, that, tell you you have to try something, you guys. You don't have to try something. You're grown ups. You can just make a, your own decisions. Well, just I was, I was don't buckle under it. the pressure. Just put a little ketchup nah, and mustard just, on it. You smash, you flip the bowl into their face <laughs> and say, you don't tell me what to do. <laughs> flip the bowl into their face. Oh, this nice. is escalated quickly. <laughs> man, oh man. I, I would say, though, that, uh, you know, if you trust the individuals that you are with, then close your eyes. That's what I did. I, I closed my eyes before I ate, so I didn't, couldn't see, had no preconceived notion other than the taste. Yep. And, and that worked. I, you mentioned also the chocolate covered grasshopper. I remember trying uh, cricket here on. Uh, was was it with you, yeah, Greg? I yes. remember hearing that on air. Yeah, yeah, the the, the, the bag of the salted crickets. Yeah, yeah, they're actually pretty tasty. So because you can get the powder, it's ground up into powder, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Well, this one was an actual cricket. It was just a fried cricket. That was it was like a salty snack. What was his name, Buddy Holly? Oh. <laughs> sure, <laughs> Jiminy. Your dreams come true. Oh, your feet's too big. Don't want you cause your feet's too big. Can't use you cause your feet's too big. I love you cause your feet's too big. <laughs> Strange uh, reason to love someone. Because your feet are too big. Mackling McGarry on this Tuesday morning at Behind the Glass Jerry, finding all the relevant music to get you through the day. One Canadian man says he has collected enough evidence to not only conclude Sasquatch is real, he is going to California to have Sasquatch declared a recognized species. Let's take a listen. Good day, my name's Todd Standing. I am the man who takes people out into the field and has them either live interact with or eyewitness a Sasquatch. Done it with the best in the world. PhDs, anthropologists, professors, wildlife biologists, survivor man himself has been guided out into the hardcore backcountry wilderness of North America and live interacted with Sasquatch on multiple occasions. Ten years ago, I released a documentary that we used to work towards species protection and recognition of Sasquatch. Now here I am again releasing a new documentary so significant, I'll use it as evidence in a court of law to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the species commonly referred to as Bigfoot does currently reside here in the forests of North America. I'm launching lawsuits against U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Canadian Fish and Wildlife Services for not recognizing this indigenous species. With this feature film entitled Discovering Bigfoot and the introduction of evidence from the most elite specialists in the fields of wildlife biology, anthropology, fingerprint experts, and DNA, I intend to prove in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt that the most man-like primate on the planet currently resides right here in the forests of North America. 
You saw Harry and the Hendersons, right, Brett? Of course. Well, all that shouldn't have been enough. That's enough proof, right? That <laughs> Bigfoot's real. Well, yeah. why the charade? Yeah, he uh, <laughs> he looked completely real. Yeah, for sure. 100% buy it. Yeah. Todd Standing was a guest with Drext on the shift. Heard overnights right here on 680 CJOB. And uh, Drex ad to, asked Todd, what evidence does this man of science have to prove the existence of Bigfoot? They need to be able to take a wildlife officer out and show them a Sasquatch. So I went down to California, met with a Native American. He told me and had pictures and stuff of all this, this amazing stuff about a Sasquatch there. And I went out there and confirmed it. I have photos. I have new videos. Um, everything he said about the Sasquatch, he told me that there would be a young Sasquatch that would come around that had a limp, yeah. was very, like, chubby, and uh, would live interact with me like crazy and to watch out for the rest of the group. So, That's exactly so, what happened. So how do you get a, how do you get a California court or, or even a wildlife officer to, to believe that there is Sasquatch? You know, even, even sort of looking through this story you did with Global, they reached out to Alberta Wildlife and they said that they don't really keep stats on this sort of stuff. Uh, how do well, you, what do you need to present to government authorities to say, hey, listen, this is a real thing and this actually exists? Yeah, well, when I go to court, There'll be professors, there'll be uh, wildlife biologists, there'll be police officers, forensic police officers that will all come forward and either have eyewitnessed them or have s- significant physical evidence. And all of the people that are coming to testify, which, again, the number is significant, they're all going to say, this species is real, this needs to be done, and they're colleagues of mine. So, like, for example, Survivor Man. I took him out in four episodes and he live interacted with a Sasquatch or took video of it. Uh, Jeff Meldrum, who is in my documentary, in the documentary, I showed him a Sasquatch after he spent days out there looking at tracks, looking at structures, looking at new signs that people didn't know are Sasquatch-related. Sasquatch have been trying to communicate with us for decades. You can see the video at globalnews.ca and visit the official page for The Shift to hear the entire interview. Because your feet's too big. The flu, the mere mention of the word, never mind the virus itself, makes some of us queasy. I'm Greg Mackling. He is Brett McGarry. And as we've heard from the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority, the World Health Organization, and our own experiences, this flu season has been a difficult one. How can science, more specifically mathematics, predictive reasoning, and algorithms, collectively known as artificial intelligence, help in this battle? Dr. Dr. Alan Bernstein co-wrote an op-ed piece published in yesterday's Globe and Mail on the future role of AI in the battle against influenza. Dr. Bernstein is in Winnipeg to receive the distinguished Henry G. Friesen International Prize in Health and visited Albrechtson Research Centre at St. Boniface Hospital. That's where I caught up to him. And let's start with the basics. Dr. Bernstein, what is artificial intelligence? So artificial intelligence, or AI, is basically a tool for predicting the future. And if you think about it, um, the reason we called it AI, or intelligence, is all of us are predicting the future. We couldn't live, we couldn't survive without knowing something about what's going to happen. Uh, we, we, we kind of just take it for granted. Well, that's why we don't pee on the electric fence, because <laughs> either we did it before, or we know someone that did and told us never to do that. Or we read about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's intelligence. So, so AI, in its simplest form, is a way of predicting the future. And, and of course, if you think about pl- flu, there's, 
you know, it's one of those things where we would all love to be able to predict, first of all, which flu virus is going to hit us this year uh, and how severe it's going to be and whether it's going to selectively affect older people, middle-aged people, or younger people, or all of the above. So that's all a prediction. Um, and, of course, we predict uh, as humans on the basis of past experience. That's the only way you can predict. Um, and so if you're a, a one-year-old and you've seen a cat before several times, you know that eventually that cat will go meow. That's a prediction of the future based on your past experience. It's an algorithm in its simplest form, That's yes? Right. That's right. That, exactly. That's a learning algorithm. And, and so when CIFAR, uh, when, with Jeff Hinton and his colleagues under CIFAR's auspices, developed deep learning, they really were basically on the very simple idea. That's how a one-year-old learns face re- recognition and you know, whether a cat, cat will go meow or bow-wow. Okay, um, and so that's in, in its essence how AI works. So, how can we use AI in the battle against the flu? Population health in general deals with predicting the future. How do we prevent disease in the future? How do we prevent flu from being bad in the future? Um, and so, this was a meeting of minds between the AI community and the population health community discussing, in general and in particular, with flu. What are the challenges and opportunities of combining those two? And so I think that we will see over the next uh, decade, let's say, two huge advances in flu science. One is the application of AI to more quickly predict what kind of flu season it's going to be. And, and the, we had a great discussion there because you can quickly predict things. This is really far out from social media. And for looking at the number of cancellations, for example, of uh, airplane reservations. Because people who have flu tend not to cancel, who are sick. Or you'll see on, in social media, you'll see the word fever come up more often. And so if you have an algorithm that can detect that, you go, oh, if flu season's happening, this, it's a bit earlier than normal, let's say, or the, the media, the, the, the Facebooks or the tweets are for more se- older people, must be effectively way before public health agencies conventionally or traditionally would pick that up. So AI allows you to do that. So that's one kind of arm of it all. The second arm of it, of course, would be it would be great to have a universal flu vaccine. It didn't have to be re-engineered every year, uh, depending on what strain of flu is hitting us. And there's a lot of research, both here in Winnipeg at the microbiology labs um, and around the world, on trying to identify the vulnerability of the flu virus so that we can develop a flu vaccine and produce it faster. Because right now we're kind of, we have two things against us. We don't know what flu strain is going to hit us this year, and it takes time to scale up and produce it. Um, and so that's why, you know, this year, for example, the, the estimate is that the vaccine is only 10, 20% effective, uh, and it was produced late. So, um, and it was late to be detected. So. AI and these and these other universal vaccines would be, I think, a sea change, as I said. So it's it's an interesting time right now. 
That's the voice of Dr. Alan Bernstein. He's in Winnipeg this week to receive recognition for his work as a molecular biologist and, in particular, research surrounding cancer. And I'll visit with him and share the part of the conversation I had about that research on the health report coming up on Sunday, a production of St. Boniface Hospital Foundation. Uh, Brett, amongst Dr. Bernstein's lengthy list of credentials, first president and CEO of the Canadian Institute for Health Research, a member of the Royal Society of Canada, officer in the Order of Canada, and he's also an honorary citizen of Winnipeg. He had that honour bestowed upon him by former Winnipeg Mayor Glenn Murray. One, two, three. I'm Brett McGarry, he's Greg Mackling, and she is Shanalee Vidal. It's time for Three Things with Shanalee Vidal, and today it's Three Things That Have to Do With Awards. Hi, Shanalee. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, SLV. So obviously the first one is the big one. The Oscar nominations just came out, as you heard Jeff Braun mention. They are trickling in. They are slowly trickling in. It's uh, it's really fun to watch them just come in so slowly. And Brett is going to do some uh, Googling for us. And Yeah, I think the the nominees are complete. Are they complete? They're complete. And uh, so Brett is going to find out how many times Meryl Streep has been nominated. Okay, I have the answer. So I will wait for my cue. (laughs) So anyways, uh, I want to talk to you about the Canadian side of the Oscars. Oh, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, so Christopher Plummer supporting role in All the Money in the World. That's the one where he replaced Kevin Spacey, of course. Yeah. So uh, his supporting roles earned an Oscar nomination. That's unbelievable. Uh, The breadwinner based on the novel by Canadian author Deborah Ellis is also nominated for Best Animated Film. Congratulations. Congratulations to her. Other Canadians announced this morning during the nomination's announcement included production designers Dennis Gassner and Paul Osterberry and costume designer Luis M. Sakira. Gassner worked on Blade Runner 2049, while Osterberry and Sakira are nominated for The Shape of Water. And speaking of The Shape of Water, yes, that film is leading the, the nominee pack, and that's kind of what people were expecting. It has 13 nods. And, of course, uh, we're going to talk more Oscars later on in the show with uh, the Couch Potatoes. Hopefully it's not a uh, an unlucky 13, because by all accounts, this is a spectacular, very special film, and so it'd be unusual. I, I haven't seen it yet, but it's, it's on my list. It's one of those, I have to see it before March 4th. Yeah, well, before, that's probably a good plan. Yeah, and it's Jimmy Kimmel hosting again this year. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. they brought Jimmy back. Well, good. I didn't know yeah. that. Um, and so, Brett, did you uh, did you, do you have an answer? Meryl Streep has been nominated, including this year's nomination for her role in The Post. She has been nominated for an Oscar 21 times. Since 1978, her first nomination was The Deer Hunter, Best oh. Supporting Actress. She has won three times for Kramer vs. Kramer in 1979, Best Supporting Actress. And then uh, Best Actress uh, in 1982 for Sophie's Choice. And then 2011, The Iron Lady. She always says she is the the most, uh, I can't remember how she puts it, and Jeff Braun remembers, but she likes to say she's the, the, the most prolific Oscar loser in history because she gets nominated all the time and loses, right? Oh, so. yeah, we feel really sorry for you, Meryl. <laughs> I, 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 it's like, just enough. Enough, enough. Let somebody else have a chance, give her a, a Lifetime Achievement Award, and then there's a cutoff. There, you're not allowed to be nominated any longer, and we're just going to move on. Fair enough. But then nobody, who's going to have the fun of beating Meryl Streep? Oh. You see what an honor that is. You uh, beat up Meryl Streep. You must be point. really good. All right. That's a good you know, point. You see? Shirley <laughs> Vidal's cold black heart looking at things in a different fashion. <laughs> you see? And now, okay, so now we talked about the Oscars, and of course we talked about all the the good acting and good filmmaking. And so what goes hand in hand with the Oscars is 
it makes us think of the bad acting out there. Okay. Because the day before the Oscars come out, which is yesterday, yes, we hear about the Golden Razzie nominations. All right, I, d- I didn't know it was Golden Raspberries. Gold- I always knew them as the Razzies. The, the Razzies for short. Okay. It's going to be the 30th annual Razzie Awards. They're happening March 3rd, so the day before the Oscars. And so those nominations for the Mock Awards show have come out. And the publicity announcement says, simply defined, Razzie... Hazardous waste is material with properties that make it dangerous or capable of having a harmful effect on human health or the environment. <laughs> and so this year's Razzies see the latest Transformers movie being nominated in every category except for one, which is Worst Actress. Okay. Well, Fifty Shades Darker is included in seven categories, including Worst Picture. Okay, could have predicted that, I think. Jennifer Lawrence's performance in Mother. I have to, I'm trying to yeah. do the exclamation mark yep. there. Yeah, it's part of the title, so you're obligated to do that has been recognized in the worst actress category really? you know I saw that movie and I was just I was really confused it just left me I and I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. I I don't know if I I don't think I enjoyed it it just left me disturbed and I just left me confused and I didn't like it but then I couldn't stop thinking about it so it's a it's an it's an it's it's an odd film. Okay. Uh, yeah, Tom. I'll skip it. Tom Cruise's performance in The Mummy has been nominated for Worst Actor and nominated for Worst Picture. Baywatch. The- yes. <laughs> it has The Rock in it, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I must watch I, it's it. It's still on my list. <laughs> uh, the Emoji Movie. <laughs> Brutal. Terrible. Fifty Shades Darker, The Mummy, and Transformers: The Last Night. Oh come on! Shocker. How can you vote Shocker. against the Transformers film? Very easily. Yeah, those movies just yeah. get increasingly worse. Like, well, how can they get worse? Like the premise, oh, really? Apparently, they can. Oh, uh, evidently. Because Michael Bay is involved, and as much as I enjoyed Michael, some of Michael Bay's earlier films, mm-hmm. they just get worse and worse. These Transformers movies are always too long. Like the fourth one, I think, was two hours and forty-five minutes. You're not making Schindler's List two. You're making a Transformers movie. Like, keep it under two hours. <laughs> Let's just see some big robots beat each other up yeah. and get out. Just so this last one, the last night, uh, involves Transformers coming from another planet. I, I, so it just gets bigger, right? Neighborhood, city, country. Now the whole world is yeah. under a siege. Ah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Just smash some stuff and be done in 90 minutes. Yeah, I like that's, your thoughts. That's I like it. your so, thought process there. Now for number three. So tomorrow there's going to be a very special award ceremony of a different kind in Ottawa. Uh, so this one's different because we already know who's being honored. Governor General Julie Payette is going to invest 48 recipients into the Order of Canada, two companions, eight officers, and 38 members. And three of those members are Winnipeggers. I love this. Yeah. Great list. Paul Albrechtson Mm -hmm. is on the list, president and CEO of uh, Paul's Hauling, and just wonderful philanthropist. He has his name, of course, on the uh, helipad at Mm -hmm. HSC, the research center at St. Boniface Hospital. He's donated a ton of money to the refit center. Uh, Very grateful for the medical care that he received uh, when he had a cardiac mm-hmm. event. So uh, good to, on Paul Ar- Albrechtson. I was surprised that he hadn't already been invested. Uh, so this surprised me. Exactly. Also on the list, uh, Dr. Judith Barlett. She's committed so much of her life to improving mm-hmm. healthcare in Manitoba's Indigenous community. So it's really nice to see her being honoured. And uh, finally, Tracy Dahl, opera singer. If you haven't seen Tracy Dahl perform, oh my God, you're missing out. Oh, she yes. is amazing. Her... her um, She's a soprano, and it's 
it's almost this kind of perfect pitch she has. And she's performed with like pretty much all of the major opera companies in Canada. She is world renowned and uh, one of our, our national treasures in the arts communities. Yeah, congratulations to all three Absolutely. of those Manitobans. And, and for a, a little treat, actually, I was looking at the whole list and Mike Myers is being uh, invested into the Order of Canada as one of the officers. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> That's uh, what, what do you say to that? Uh, Party time, excellent. Swing. <laughs> Party time, excellent. <laughs> Thank you very much, Shanley Vidal. Three things with Shanley heard every day on the 680 CJOB morning show after the 8 o'clock news. Ryan Patrick. Now, Ryan Patrick is the supervisor of the Traffic Management Center in the city. Now, the city's Traffic Management Center has been operational for about a year now, and this center uses cameras to help monitor traffic so they can keep on top of issues. So we thought we'd have a check to see if there has indeed been an improvement. Ryan Patrick, supervisor of the Traffic Management Center. Good good morning to you, sir. Thank you for joining us live on 680 CJOB. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, we greatly appreciate your time. Ryan, uh, paint a picture for us. What does this traffic uh, traffic management center look like on the inside? How many monitors and how many cameras are you able to access from the traffic management center? Sure. So it's not your stereotypical uh, management center. It's definitely not like the Italian job in the movies. Um, it's very small, compact. We're data-driven, so we'll take information from... Uh, various sources, so 311, our traffic signals, uh, where's the app, uh, and we're basically verifying that information and pushing uh, information out to the driver through Waze and through uh, Twitter. How many cameras do you have access to if you're using cameras throughout the city to help monitor traffic? Uh, currently, I think we're at 118 so what does that allow you to do, Ryan? Once you you know if you if you're paying attention to these cameras, and I assume that's the job of anyone working in the in the center. What do you have the power to do? What can you change from from where you sit? So the cameras basically used as as a verification tool. The the primary function is actually looking at a, at a map. Uh, as incidents come in, they will use the cameras to verify that information. So if somebody uh, reports a collision, we're using those cameras to verify that, and then. Uh, ascertain what, what lens that, that is in and put that information out through uh, where's the navigation app. Um, where possible, we're looking to make some signals changes to alleviate the snarl that might be around that. Now, you're saying where's possible. Are there a limited number of intersections that you have control over traffic signals? Uh, we're connected to all the intersections. Uh, the issue might become uh, whether it's a benefit or not to, to make any changes to that specific one. Uh, in the downtown region, for example, where you've got a lot of intersections close together, uh, it's not always uh, successful or the right thing to do to to make a change. It's more about educating uh, people, getting that information out through Twitter and ways so people can avoid that area. But where we can, we definitely make the changes. Ryan Patrick is supervisor of the Traffic Management Center for the City of Winnipeg. Now, Ryan, before the uh, this management center came into being, did the city have the ability to make on-the-fly adjustments to traffic signals to help alleviate stress? Uh, absolutely not. It was uh, the it was very much the dark ages, unfortunately. Um, you go back uh, four years, five years, uh, there was a really primitive connection in terms of uh, coordination. 
Uh, and that was a physical cable which constantly got dug up and severed. And when that happened, there was no real way for us to tell real time. We were reliant on members of the public calling 311. Now we can uh, ascertain what's going on almost instantly. That cable uh, would be cut. Now, Ryan, we've had a situation on northbound Main Street. Uh, you lose one of the turning lanes uh, moving on to St. Mary Avenue. And for at least two weeks now, since we've come back from holiday break, we've uh, seen traffic back up all the way back uh, on Main Street over the Norwood Bridges onto St. Mary's Road. When there are projects that are long-term like this that are causing issues, do you reevaluate some of the signaling? And uh, does, does this come up in your queue as something to monitor? monitor and keep a closer eye on? Uh, definitely, very much so. Um, where possible, obviously, the, there's plans in place to minimize the disruption in one direction for multiple roads. However, some construction is necessary. Um, where we step in is when that construction comes up, we will evaluate whether it's planned or emergency. Uh, we're on it and we'll look at what can be done to uh, change specific times. Do you have any idea in terms of what kind of improvement uh, we have seen since the inception of your centre? Like, are there any statistics that you can point to? Uh, in terms of travel time in minutes, uh, we don't have that capability yet. That's something we're now looking at implementing uh, over the next coming uh, years or year. Um, I can give you a statistic in terms of since we were open, we had probably a backlog of about 1,200 timing complaints. Um, that was purely because of the nature of how long it took. Uh, now we're down to less than 100 since opening because we've got that capability to, to troubleshoot from a desk. We can really make that an efficient process. Yeah, I can tell you from experience, uh, Ryan, that uh, westbound Chief Pegasus Trail uh, heading to southbound Henderson Highway sometimes gets caught in an odd time cycle, and I'll call 311, and then sure enough, I'll go through the next day, and, and they've adjusted the, that cycle. Uh, is that helpful when people call 311 when they encounter what seems to be a, a short and light cycle? Uh, very much so. I mean, we, we're relying on the, the technology we've got to pick up anomalies. Uh, equally, uh, it's nice to have that uh, human interaction and, and get somebody calling when there's an issue. The things to bear in mind, though, are you might not always see the same thing at the same intersection every day in terms of the signals. Uh, there's variances if somebody pushes a push button that can alter the green time potentially. Um, alternately, it might be a different uh, time of day and it might be running a different plan. Ryan, we've got a text message here, and uh, I'm curious about this as well, actually. The listener is asking, do you have the capability to assist fire and ambulance getting through traffic by adjusting signals in real time? It's something we, we looked at before the uh, management center actually opened, uh, and the cost was, was um, extraordinary. Uh, so unfortunately, it was put on hold at that point. Uh, we have now discovered uh, a more efficient way and a cheaper way to potentially do that. Um, so that's something that is being discussed. But then you fall into problems such as if you, how many vehicles do you give it to? If you've got two vehicles going uh, different streets to the same intersection, who gets priority? So there's a lot of discussion to be had to implement something like that. But it's certainly, it's capable. It's, it's just a matter of the cost and sorting out the politics and the ordering of it.
Well, Ryan, and I guess the, the next question from me would be, what's next for the Traffic Management Centre? Clearly, uh, one year in its infancy, are there are there more plans to be able to do more things and to have the Management Centre be more active in terms of uh, real-time uh, traffic signalling and, and other uh, possible engagements? For sure, you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's very much the infancy, and I foresee growing for the next number of years, uh, especially with the rate technology changes. Uh, so there's a number of things we, we are looking at implementing to improve traffic. Um, the primary focus right now is uh, the Waze app, so pushing people to use the Waze app. The more people use that, the more information they get. It's real-time. It's automatic rerouting the uh, better information we get back to in terms of what's going on in the street. So right now, that's a great tool to use. Uh, for us, it's free. Uh, for the user, it's free to download. Uh, so that's the, the best tool right now to, to go to. Ryan, is that a two-way interface before we let you go? If I download the app, um, are, are my movements being tracked, and am I then a part of the of the data that's being collected? Uh, no, so it's today Waze is very much uh, prides themselves on the privacy aspect, so it's very much anonymous. Uh, you can report incidents, and we will see those incidents in our feed. Uh, equally, you can pick up the incidents we report back out to the public. Uh, it, it takes the average speed of a bunch of vehicles that would go through a certain strip, uh, so it's very much an anonymous. And also mentioned that you have to use it mounted and hands-free, and now it's totally uh, hands-free in terms of you communicate to it via voice and it will communicate to you via voice. So it's kind of like a Siri. Ryan Patrick, supervisor of the city's traffic management center. Thank you so much for the time and the access today. We very much appreciate it. No worries, thank you. Coach Potatoes, Brett McGarry, Jeff Braun. Whoa. Don't call me Jeff Braun. Call me by your name. Why? Oh, I see what he did there. Why? He was playing Brett's game. <laughs> he didn't even get it. Yeah, no, it's one of the nominees. Call Me By Your Name is the name of the film. <laughs> I'm stepping up well, now this because is, I can't play this game. No, but I'm glad that you had that reaction because yeah. just very quickly, this is part of the problem with the Oscars. That's because, well, it, for, for, for people who aren't as uh, avid fans like me and like we are for just kind of casual movie fans a movie like call me by your name is probably one they never heard of right yeah and now that's been nominated for an oscar it might uh you know get a few people to go out and see it should i go see it yeah it hasn't opened here yet but oh, okay. once it does all right yeah. it's uh, just finally starting to get rolled out uh, i think on a wider basis it's been playing very limited release for like three months but I think it's this will be the the push that it needs. Okay, yeah. so I know you were alluding to some of the nominees. <laughs> uh, the best picture nominees include Jeff Braun. Go ahead. Call me by your name. What you mentioned? Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Yeah, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, The Shape of Water, and three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. And how many have you seen? Five. Which ones? Uh, Shape of Water, The Post, Lady Bird, Get Out. And Dunkirk. Okay. Now you guys so, both got some work to do. You both sort of cheered when Get Out was announced. Yeah, this, it's a horror movie. I, does, does this surprise you that it would get this type of recognition? I never. I get the closest thing that's come to a horror type movie being nominated. Uh, last one, anyways, would have been Silence of the Lambs. Probably, yeah. Or I guess The Sixth Sense did too, right? So, yeah, that's so true. It's rare that something like this gets nominated, and it was such a fantastic movie. So. 
It's yeah. just, you know, it is actually something fun that gets nominated. And, it, and it, may, it, it has some important things to say on the the quote-unquote post-racial yeah. America. It's a biting satire, and it's just a creative, innovative film. I've never quite seen anything like it. And along the, with it and Dunkirk, I guess, would be the two most popular films that were nominated. I guess the post is done all right, too. But three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, this is sure to have a bounce back or to, to gain some momentum. Did not get nominated for Best Director. What the, and what's it is that? very rare that a movie gets a Best Picture nomination, not a Best Director nomination, but still wins. That I mean, seems a little odd, right? Argo did it, but... And they did it. maybe it didn't get nominated because the director of Lady Bird got nominated after getting ignored yeah. at the Golden Globes. Greta Gerwood, along with uh, Jordan Peele... And The Shape of Water's Guillermo del Toro. So there, right there you have a woman, an African-American, and a Mexican guy getting nominated for Oscars. And that doesn't happen every day. That's pretty cool. Jordan Peele nominated for Get Out, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, and Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread. And you uh, are going to go see a movie probably. Which one do you think you might go see this I week? I think you're going to see Three Billboards this week or maybe Phantom Thread. Yeah, I think I need to. I've only seen two. This is and this is the annual tradition, Greg. Uh, usually, what happens is Jeff Braun ends up seeing most, if not all, of them by the time the nominations come out. Whereas I have seen maybe one or two. So I'm surprised that I've seen two of them: Dunkirk and Get Out. Well, and we both went to so many more movies than usual in the past year, and you still and missed we a bunch. Still barely got half of them. Well, one movie that I know you saw, and I saw it even in the theater, was Star Wars. Liz wants to know why no mention of. Star Wars in the Oscars, maybe best score. It's nominated for that. It's nominated for uh, visual effects and the two sound effects ones. Yeah, it'll probably it'll it'll be nominated. I'm sure at all the yeah. technical categories. But as far as uh, best picture, uh, no chance on dance. Eh, not maybe. Who knows? We'll see. We'll wait around for episode nine. Today at City Hall, council members will vote on a code of conduct. That code of conduct was created by the city's Integrity Commissioner, Sherry Walsh. We've invited her to join us on the show today to learn more about her role as Integrity Commissioner and the code of conduct that is before the committee. Sherry Walsh joins us live on 680 CJOB. Good morning, Ms. Walsh. Good morning. We appreciate you taking the time on uh, what's a monumental day for you. Congratulations on this new role. Uh, did you know what you're what you're signing up for here? Is this is this something that you're you're excited about? Is there any trepidation trepidation on your part? Um, I would say more excitement than trepidation. Um, I have spent the last um, eight months uh, working very um, diligently on on understanding how members of council carry out their work and um, on um, determining um, what would be the best um, provisions for uh, a new code of conduct for them. And, and I have spent a lot of time working with them to educate them on what the provisions of the proposed code mean and what they would mean to how they carry out their duties of office. So um, I'm, I'm excited. So we want to ask you about the code of conduct in a moment. But before, before we do that, uh, maybe can you just in, say, 30 seconds or less, explain what is your role as Integrity Commissioner for the City of Winnipeg? So it's a dual role. Um, my mandate is to be available to the members of council to provide them with advice about their ethical obligations and to receive and investigate and report on complaints about um, uh, alleged breaches of uh, their actions under the Code of Conduct. 
Is there an opportunity to be proactive in this, Ms. Walsh, in terms of, you know, uh, if, if you're concerned about an activity or uh, maybe a vacation that you might be going on might come under the uh, microscope in terms of the media and the public? Is there an opportunity to consult with you ahead of time uh, before making a decision, say, on a business deal or, or something similar? Well, you've, you've um, very um, smartly identified what I think is the most important aspect of this role, and that is the advisory role, and why that's important is because of that notion of being proactive. The point is to prevent breaches of um, the code of conduct before they take place. And so that really is um, what I view as the most significant aspect of this role. And, you know, since um, taking on the position um, last April, uh, members of council have been contacting me on a regular basis to seek my advice about matters. You know, can they accept a certain gift? Can they, you know, um, undertake certain fundraising activities, that sort of thing. And and I really um, hope that that will continue because that is, I think, the most important role for the members of council and for the city. Sherry Walsh is the City of Winnipeg's Integrity Commissioner, and your code of conduct for city councillors that you've drafted goes before the Governance Committee today at 1 o'clock, sets out 10 rules of behaviour. Can you talk about uh, what some of those rules are? Sure. So the rules relate to use of confidential information, um, conflicts of interest, um, acceptance of gifts and benefits, use of influence, use of city resources, Um, election-related activity, um, conduct regarding staff, and um, respectful conduct and and, um, harassment or anti-harassment provisions. Um, so those are those are the basic rules and a rule against um, um, reprisal for anybody who might um, file a, a complaint under the code. And then this new code has um, a whole mechanism for um, filing a complaint um, and uh, for the in, uh, integrity commissioner to um, investigate that complaint if it meets a certain threshold. And um, if the integrity commissioner finds there's been a breach of the code to report on that publicly to council. The code also has um, sanctions set out in it um, that can be recommended uh, to council to impose if they find that uh, there has been a breach. So all of um, that is, is new uh, for the city. So those punitive powers or, or those uh, punitive uh, repercussions that a councillor might face, are they they're li- laid out ahead of time in terms of this uh, code of conduct? Or are they at someone else's discretion? Is there someone yourself perhaps or someone else that can can uh, lay down uh, some rules or some punishment if these rules are are ignored disobeyed or or uh, uh, sidetracked somehow yeah no that's an excellent question the sanctions for misconduct are specifically outlined in the code um, under the heading enforcement um, you know as a matter of fairness um, uh, members of council need to know um, what they might be um, you know held responsible to do how they might be sanctioned um, if they um, you know fail to meet their uh, ethical obligations so um, those sanctions are set out and so it would be up to the integrity commissioner to make recommendations um, in their report to council but it's council that has the um, the responsibility to actually impose the sanction what some of what are some of the sanctions that councillors uh, might have to be aware of? Um, that um, they be reprimanded publicly, um, that they be required to make a public apology, um, to return a gift or benefit, 
um, that they be removed from a committee or um, that the mayor might remove them as chair of a committee. There are no um, financial sanctions because to do that, we would need um, a legislative amendment. Now, you mentioned that your primary role is that of an advisory role, uh, but have there been any instances yet where you've spotted behavior that was questionable and you had to step in to, to rein somebody in? Well, I don't think I would comment if I had, but um, um, no, I, I haven't, I haven't um, seen anything of concern. What tools are at your disposal, Ms. Walsh? Or have you got far-reaching uh, resources in terms of human resources, financially? Like, you know, we're seeing what's happening in the United States with the, the Mueller investigation, obviously a gigantic situation uh, investigating uh, the, the conduct of individuals now in the part of the American government. Uh, there's money involved. There's time. There are human resources involved. Have you got uh, budget restraints, constraints, or have you got some, some things at your disposal? disposal uh, if you wanted to launch an investigation? So, you know, once the the new code is passed, then um, I will be um, empowered to accept complaints and investigate them. And um, the city has passed a budget that includes um, my work in that regard. Um, I guess we'll see whether the budget is sufficient. Um, you know, we'll see how many complaints, how complicated they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is new territory for, for the city. Um, in terms of other tools, um, I don't have any um, power to compel someone to meet with me or, you know, to subpoena someone to give me records. All I can do right now is ask someone. And I suppose if I ask someone to meet with me and they don't, then I can write that in my report. And so that will be publicly known. But ultimately, I would like to see um, legislative changes that would give the Integrity Commissioner that kind of power to, to subpoena witnesses and documents. So do you see this evolving over time then, Ms. Walsh, in terms of the powers? And, and, and has the, uh, have the rules been written as such that, that they're easily amendable? Um, I do see this evolving. I don't know that the rules have to be um, amended. What I would like to see, um, you know, is an opportunity for expanded powers, um, and that would be something that um, I'll be working with the city on in terms of the city requesting further legislative changes from the province. Um, but the rules that are set out in the code have been designed to to cover a, a variety of um, you know possibilities and certainly if you know if necessary um, if something doesn't work or we need to change something there is always that possibility uh, to amend and I'm um, just I see that it's been 24 years since uh, the last code of conduct took effect does that that strikes me as as kind of odd that it's taken this long to to be updated is that odd to you well, you know, I really commend um, the members of council for uh, focusing on this issue and pushing the matter forward to have this new accountability and ethics framework, which includes having an integrity commissioner and a new code of conduct. This is still um, a relatively new area of, uh, of um, political law, if you will. Toronto first hired an integrity commissioner in 2004. So, you know, I mean, and now you're seeing many more um, integrity commissioners um, being installed across the country. And now it's mandatory in Ontario for every municipality to have at least a contract to have someone available to act as an integrity commissioner. So this is, uh, you know, I think Winnipeg is still, um, you know, on the on the leading edge of, of uh, where these issues are going. 
One last question for you, Sherry Walsh. If uh, you rattled or you know the wrong cages or rustled the wrong feathers or ruffled the wrong feathers, who can get rid of you? What is the process to to get rid of Sherry Walsh from her position? I have a contract. Um, so I have a two-year term that can be renewed up to five times. Um, so that provides a fair bit of independence and security because I can only be fired um, if uh, for incompetence. Um, so, um, you know, and, and I assume it would have to be by um, a vote of, of council. Um, so council is the answer, but right. um, they can't just do it on a whim. Okay, so it would be a vote of council to uh, say goodbye to Sherry Walsh, as we're going to do right now. Okay, thank you very <laughs> Congratulations much. Congratulations once again, and we really appreciate the, the look at this new role. Very uh, informative. Thank Good, you. Thank you. Thanks to Behind the Glass Jerry, Shanley Vidal. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOB.